ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 13 together this morning. And when you have that, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word as we read this passage together. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 13. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another, a second angel followed saying, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image. And anyone who receives the mark of its name, this calls for endurance from the saints who keep, who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, since they will rest from their labors, since their works follow them. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Amen. It's a very heavy passage, and it talks about hell. In a very straightforward way, it talks about a reality that many people in our culture do not appreciate, do not want to think about, do not believe, and cannot believe that there would be someone who would believe in a God who would have hell be the punishment for those who reject him. And yet, that is the very clear teaching of the Bible. And so we're going to be looking at that together this morning, hopefully with tears in our eyes, as we think about the reality that hell awaits all those who reject Jesus. Now, friends, not everyone believes that. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, The Great Divorce. In that book, he pictured hell as a gray town, kind of a drab gray town. And the people in the town, they remember dying, but they're not really troubled by the fact that they can remember dying. It doesn't really bother them. They're busy with other things. Uh, the population of the town is always growing. It's always expanding. But the people don't live close together. Over time, they just move farther and farther apart from one another. And at the same time, there is a bus that comes to the town. And the bus takes whoever will come to a beautiful valley with a river and trees and majestic mountains, and their spirits, these are those that have solid physical bodies, come and try to talk with the people from the gray town and try to encourage them to stay by the river, because if they'll stay by the river, then they'll regain their physical bodies, and they'll be able to make their journey to the mountain and climb the mountain. Surprisingly, though, when you read through the book, most of the people from the gray town find reasons to return back to their drab existence. One wants to make more money. He's focused on making a lot of money in this life and has decided he can make money in the gray town. Another doesn't like the spirits because he remembers them. And he remembers being more morally virtuous than they were in this life. And he's somewhat offended that they 
are these spirits with physical bodies and he doesn't have it. He doesn't want anything to do with them. Another believes that all authority everywhere is corrupt. And so he wants to go back to the gray town and continue his existence. Ultimately, they return to the gray town because in Lewis's words, they would rather be miserable than humble. But you know, in the novel, others choose to stay by the river. And so they regain their bodies, and over time, they're able to make the journey to the mountain. You see, for C.S. Lewis, hell isn't a place sinners can't escape. It is a place where sinners choose to remain. For Lewis, hell is a place where sinners become more and more selfish, and that's why they draw apart from one another over time. And eventually, they're so far away from other people that they are completely isolated for all eternity That is his view of hell, but according to Lewis, not everyone stays in hell. The great divorce gives the impression that even after death, God continues to invite people to come to heaven, and some actually do choose to come to heaven. They leave hell, and they live with God forever in heaven. And friends, it does make for a very interesting story, but the problem with Lewis's view of hell is that it's not the biblical view. This is not the way the Bible speaks about hell. The way the Bible speaks about hell is it is a place that sinners cannot escape. They would do so if they could. Hell is a place where God, the holy judge, is present only in his wrath. And he is present for all eternity in his wrath. And the Bible speaks of hell as a place where the torment never ends. It just goes on and on. Our passage puts it this way in verse 11. The smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. Friends, according to the Bible, hell is is both unspeakably horrible and it's everlasting. And if that's true, we need to think about it. If that's true, it makes no sense to ignore it. None. And I understand that we live in a culture that does not appreciate the topic and doesn't want to hear about the topic, but one of the glories of expositional preaching is you go from passage to passage, you always know what you're going to preach. One of the challenges is you don't get to choose what you preach. And in this passage, we have such clear teaching on the nature of God's judgment that out of love for all who are hearing my words, we just need to hit it straight on. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask, is this real? Is this what the Bible really teaches? We're going to grapple with it. So we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 14. Chapter 14 contains three visions. We've seen so many visions so far. Three more visions now. But in chapter 14, coming out of kind of the the dark visions of chapter 12 and 13, in chapter 14, you actually have these three visions that are ultimately encouraging for believers. There's encouragement here for those who are following Jesus. Uh, Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 5. There, John saw the Lamb standing with 144,000, and we said that that's a picture of God's protection of His people, because when you put Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14 together, you see that 144,000 go into the tribulation, and 144,000 come out, and how many are lost? No one is lost. Even though there will be suffering and trial for those who follow Jesus, not one will be lost, because God watches over His people. He keeps them ultimately safe from all harm. We all, by God's grace, reach the farther shore of heaven. 
And what an encouragement that is. Now, we're looking at the second vision. Three angels now flying high overhead. And each one of these angels has a separate proclamation to give to the people who live upon the earth. Ultimately, these three messages anticipate what's coming in the book. It anticipates chapter 15 and 16, where the the seven bowls of God's final judgment are poured out upon all of the earth. And ultimately, these three angelic messages that we're going to look at this morning, they are warnings to the inhabitants of the earth to repent before it's too late. And friend, maybe that's a warning that you also need to hear this morning. Repent before it's too late. At the end of the vision, John hears a voice from heaven that encourages Christians to endure in following Jesus. So there are actually four messages in this passage, and those four messages are going to be the four points of this sermon. So if you're taking notes, four messages from Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 13. First, we're going to see an invitation in verse 6 and 7. Then we're going to see a pronouncement in verse 8. Third, we're going to see a warning in verses 9 to 12. And fourth, we're going to see an encouragement in verse 13. So look with me, if you will, at an invitation, verses 6 to 7. Here is the message of the first angel. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So now John again sees another vision. This time he sees an angel flying high overhead. We don't exactly know who this angel is. Uh, Obviously, this is a messenger from God with a message for the people of the earth. The the word there that he's flying high overhead actually speaks about the fact that the angel is is actually uh, placed where the sun reaches its apex. This is the highest point that the sun reaches in the sky. And the idea is that everyone on earth has a clear vision to see the angel and to hear the message that he's going to proclaim. He shares the message with the inhabitants of the earth. And that's a phrase, as you read through Revelation, it's talking specifically about men and women, boys and girls who are living in rebellion against God. They've not bowed the knee to Jesus. They're living for themselves. And so this angel has a message specifically for them. And what is the message? And this is, I think, one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. The message is the eternal gospel. The very first thing God says to those in active rebellion to him, even at this point in human history, when much of the world, as we've seen, is now sided with the Antichrist, has decided to worship him, even at this point in human history, God is still proclaiming the riches of his mercy in Christ, and he is inviting sinners to a free and full salvation in Jesus. And so this angel soars high overhead, proclaiming the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people. What is the gospel message that he proclaims? Well, it begins with bad news. The gospel, is a, it's a word, old English word that means good news, but it begins with bad news. And the bad news is that we were created by God, who is good and holy. God is loving. God created us to have a relationship with him. But our first parents rebelled against God in the garden. We sinned in them. And because we come from them, all of us were born with a sinful nature. 
which means instead of wanting to put God first in our life and worship Him and love Him and love other people, we by nature are kind of turned in on ourselves, and so we place ourselves at the center of our lives over and over and over, and the trajectory of our lives is looking for how I can make myself happy and satisfied and how I can pursue what I want to do. And so that leads us to do things. It leads us to rebel against God's commands things that he's written on our hearts that we know are wrong, we willingly choose to do them over and over and over. And when we hear clear teaching from the Bible about what those commands are, we reject those. Everyone sitting in this room, pastor included, has done that. And we have all harmed others. All of us have done things that we know are wrong and wrong at a deep level. You see, God's given us something called the conscience that psychiatrists have a hard time figuring out. But what it is, it is the voice of coming judgment. It is a testimony that God has given within us that lets us know what you just did was wrong, profoundly. And many of us have spent many years trying to quiet the voice of conscience, but we're actually trying to quiet a friend. You see, the Bible says sin is serious, and the Bible says that sin separates us from God and leaves us under the judgment of God. And the Bible says that God is holy, exalted, high, lifted up, worthy. We are low and sinful, unable in any way to make ourselves right with God. Christianity does not teach the way to become a person that goes to heaven is by coming to church or reading a Bible or praying a prayer or giving money to other people or being a a nice person. It doesn't teach that. Christianity teaches this fundamentally bad message that none of us can be good enough for God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then the wonder of Christianity is you've got the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that God has done everything necessary to save us from our sins friend, to save you from your sins even this morning. What did he do? God the Father, this is the eternal plan. God the Father sent his Son into the world. The eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a perfect life because you and I, we have failed to live a perfect life. His mission, you read it all the way through the Gospels, those those, uh, biographies of Christ's life that show us who he was and what he came to do, his mission all throughout was to do good, to do the will of his Father, and ultimately it was to lay his life down as a sacrifice on the cross in the place of sinners. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. He was not a pathetic martyr of a lost cause. He was not a fool who somehow got caught up in the kind of the wills of the Roman Empire He set his face to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die. And then he did die. Willingly. But then the wonder of the good news is that before he died, he said, three days later, I will rise from the dead. And that's why Christianity is a big deal. It's not because we have a a superior philosophy about how to be successful in this world. You would get that impression if you listen to the false teachers on television. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is most fundamentally a person, Jesus Christ, and because Jesus in space and time history rose from the dead, we have proof, living proof, that death has been defeated in Jesus. And the Bible gives this this proclamation, this good news to you this morning, if you will turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, God will 
Uh, God will place all of your sins, as it were, on Christ at the cross. He will have been punished for them. And then God will look at you just as if you lived Jesus' perfect life. He will credit your account, if you will, with the perfect righteousness of Christ. It is this wonderful exchange. It is a free gift of salvation. And it is offered to you this morning free and without cost. You cannot earn this gift of salvation. God will not have anyone stand before him and say, I did such a great job. You should let me into heaven because none of us have done that job. We don't have to. Even now, we can turn from our sins and put our trust in Christ. And as we do so, we have eternal life. Now, that is a message that is worth hearing. That's the message that God proclaims. There is no better message. But I do. I Listen, I want to emphasize this morning that that gospel message, it requires a response. Now, you see that at the end of verse 7. What does the angel say? He says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, again, as we study through Revelation, we've seen at this point in human history, most of the people of the world have sided with the Antichrist. They've been either compelled or they are joyfully worshiping him as God. And the angel is calling them back from that saying, no, turn away, repent, turn away from your worship of a false God and instead worship the true God. And who's the true God? He's the one who made heaven and earth. He's the one who's worthy of your praise. This angel is calling all of humanity to repentance. And friends, that is what the gospel requires now as well. All who would receive salvation, what you must do is you can't keep living for yourself and for sin. You must turn from your sin and wholeheartedly and freely put yourself before Jesus and cry out for his mercy and receive salvation as a free gift from him and friend, you will receive it even this morning. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. That, that is the heart of Christianity. That is what all of this is about. And, and it's offered to you this morning as a free gift, even now. And we pray that you will receive that free gift even now. I want to make one observation before we move on. Notice that God desires all people to be saved. What a sweet truth that is, that God desires all people to be saved. God is a great king, you know? If he created all of the universe, he can end the universe in a second. If he created all of, all of us, he can end us in the moment of our rebellion. And yet God is so patient and he bears with us. Even those of us that have rejected his rule, he's a gracious king, and because he's a gracious king, he desires that we would turn from our sins and put our trust in him. More than that, God has gone to great lengths to save sinners. You see, it begins with God. God's the one who did it. God the Father sent his son into the world to live as a man and then to die on the cross. We can't even fathom what it meant for Jesus to willingly leave the glory of heaven to come into this world to be born of, of people that were poor and needy and to, to lack and to grow up among sinful people. And then ultimately, his mission was not to serve himself in any way, but to serve others. And so for more than 30 years, he's laying down his life daily as a, a sacrifice of praise to God and of love for others. And then he laid down his life as the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, the, the author of life submitting himself to death so that you and I might be raised back up to God. And friends, God has, done, God has done even more in the sense 
that he has given us his word so that in every generation we have an inspired account, an accurate account of what Christ has done in order to rescue sinners. So friend, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but if you have a a Bible, what you have in your hand is a gift from God and it is able to make you wise unto salvation. And our encouragement would be, don't just listen to what religious people tell you, pick up the Bible for yourself and read it for yourself because it speaks with an authority that is God's authority. And we encourage you not to ignore God. We encourage you to pick up his word and to read it and to read it for yourself. Friend, the one thing that is true of you and is true of me is that we will die. Isn't it good to be prepared? Well, the Bible is the way that we can be prepared as we look at what God has done. And then God has given his church the mission of making disciples of all nations. And so for the past 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit has empowered believers to go throughout the entire world telling people about Jesus so that they might come to a saving knowledge of him. And literally hundreds of millions have responded. Throughout history, hundreds of millions of people have responded to the message of Christianity, Jesus, the gospel, and they're following him. The tragedy is that so many more have rejected Christ. And that's what you see. That's what you see in this passage. This passage demonstrates that even until the end of time, many people will turn away from God and they'll say, I'd rather live for myself. They're like the people in the gray town in that sense, focused on themselves in that sense. But God, praise God, look at this passage. Here in this passage, you see that until the end of time, God's heart towards sinners won't change. That he wants us to turn from our sins and trust in him. So he sends this angel to make this proclamation to all the world that we might repent and believe and find life in Christ. Christ Fellowship Church is our heart like God's heart in this. Have we grown cold towards the lost? Have we? I don't believe so. By God's grace, I regularly hear of ways that we're praying for and strategizing and trying to reach the gospel. But isn't it true that there's room for us to grow here? Isn't it true that there's room for more passion in our hearts to see people who are far from God come into a saving relationship with God? Isn't it true that that we should weep more when we hear about two billion people that don't even have access to the Bible, to Jesus, to knowing about the the Savior who died so that they might be forgiven. It's true that we can grow, and may God help us grow. And I'm praying that he'll use this passage this morning to help us do that. I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. And to that I say, amen. May we grow in this, Christ fellowship. Second pronouncement, look at verse 8. And another, a second angel followed saying, It has fallen, Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. So now the vision continues and you have a second angel also flying high overhead, same position. Now it's time for him to share his message. His message is a pronouncement and the pronouncement is that Babylon has fallen. It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Now, 
To this point in Revelation, we have not heard about Babylon the Great. This is the first time we hear about Babylon. But if you remember back in chapter 11, we were introduced to the beast, the beast from the sea, in exactly the same way. He's introduced, but then we don't get the full background about the beast or the Antichrist until chapter 13. Well, in the same way, now we're being introduced to Babylon the Great, but we won't get the full story, the background, the details about Babylon the Great until we get to chapter 17 and 18. So who is Babylon the Great? Well, we'll get more details later, but Revelation chapter 7 verse 2 describes Babylon as a notorious prostitute who commits sexual immorality with the kings of the earth. In Revelation chapter 17 verse 3, Babylon is shown to be intimately connected with the Antichrist, with the beast. Revelation chapter 17 verse 6 shows that Babylon is the enemy of Christians. Uh, she's the one who is drunk on their blood. Revelation chapter 18 verse 3 indicates that the merchants of the earth, the great men and women who trade and buy and sell, they will grow wealthy because of their association with Babylon. And Revelation chapter 18 verse 10 describes Babylon as a great city and a vastly wicked city. So who is Babylon? Well, commentators, not surprisingly, disagree with one another. But I agree with those commentators that understand Babylon here to specifically be the capital city of the Antichrist empire. In other words, I believe Babylon will be kind of the main location of the Antichrist government, and it will be a place of religion and a place of economy and where those two things merge together. So just as in ancient Babylon, it was opposed to God, it promoted idolatry and sexual morality, and it was vastly wealthy, so the end times city of Babylon will be the religious and economic capital of the world, a place of wanton immorality, financial greed, and idolatry. But this, I think, is important because Babylon the Great is more than a city, it is also a system. It is a religious and economic system in its essence. Uh, this is a system that will persecute Christians. This is a system that will promote idolatry and sexual immorality through the worship of the Antichrist. The good news for us is that the days of this system are numbered. That's what verse 8 says of chapter 14. Two times in verse 8, the angel proclaims that Babylon is fallen. The idea is that Babylon's destruction is so certain they can already speak about it as having been accomplished ahead of time, and this is precisely the way that the prophet Isaiah spoke about the fall of the ancient city of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 21 and verse 9. You see, the fate of the two Babylons will be the same, and it will be complete and utter destruction. When God brings final judgment, Babylon, which is the beast religious and economic system most especially, will be destroyed in a single day. And the point of the angel's pronouncement is obvious. Even though the beast, the Antichrist, and Babylon, this system of religion and economy will seem so strong, it is foolish to align yourselves with them because in an hour God will bring them to destruction because their days are numbered. Tragically, we have seen this week a picture of the way that our world is even now getting worse so one observation to flow out of this is that Babylon here shows us that the idolatry and sexual immorality that mark this world are going to grow worse and worse until the end of time. 
Now, many who hold to a post-millennial interpretation of Revelation actually believe that the world is getting better and better, and they believe with the passing of enough time, the gospel will permeate the entire world, and ultimately, once the world has been Christianized, then Christ will return. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that. I believe this verse in particular indicates that the world will not be getting better and better, but it will be getting worse and worse, and eventually the world will be ripe for the Antichrist to make his appearance when the one that's restraining him is taken away, and in that moment there will be a system that will be instituted that will be both religious and economic in nature, and it will be a brutal system against those who follow Jesus, and it will be all-encompassing. The world will be marked by darkness. Tragically, we see our world growing darker and darker all the time. We saw a picture of that this past week in our own nation. On Wednesday, 62 U.S. Senators voted to move forward the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. It's a bill now that's very likely to pass. It formally codifies marriage as a union between any two individuals regardless of gender. Now, formerly such marriages, and I'm putting marriages in quotations there, they were considered legal because of the judicial ruling of five Supreme Court justices. They, it had the same kind of precedent that Roe versus Wade had, and Roe versus Wade was just overturned. But now we see that our nation has continued its descent into moral insanity. And so it's very likely that this Respect for Marriage Act will pass, but even that won't be the end, because here's the problem. The goal of the sexual revolution is not equality, no matter how many equal signs you see driving down the road. The goal of the sexual revolution is sexual anarchy. That's what it wants. That's what it's after, total anarchy. And apart from God-sent revival, that's where our country and even the world is heading. The world, listen, here's what I'm saying. The world is racing towards Babylon. That's what I'm saying. So how should we respond? Well, we should grieve for the corruption of our nation. That's right to do. It's right for us to grieve for those things that grieve God's heart. And we should pray for God to be merciful to us because even though it's a nation we don't deserve it, it's right for us to pray and ask that God would be merciful and would spare our nation. And we should be responsible citizens. We should vote and we should let our voices be heard. That's appropriate for us to do. And we should pray for revival. Let me assure you that the only hope for America is not an election. It is revival. You can put makeup on a corpse. You cannot make the corpse live. But if God sends revival, then what you see in the 1700s and the 1800s can happen again. And the bones that are dead bones, it can be revived. And so, friends, if we want to do war, let me encourage us as those who follow Jesus to make war on our knees in prayer for our nation. Because that's where the power for change comes from for this nation. And at the same time, in light of verse 8, we should thank God for this verse, because it shows us that even though the world will continue its slide towards Babylon, that isn't the end of the story. That Babylon's day will come and go. God will have the last word. Those that side with God will reign with him. Those who oppose God, they will be judged by him. And that leads us to our third point, which is a warning. Look at verses 9 to 12. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keeps God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Oh, friends, remember in Revelation chapter 13, what did the false prophet warn the people? He said, if you do not receive the mark, you will not be able to buy or sell. In other words, you'll be forced out of society and you will starve. But in these verses, verses 9 to 12 of chapter 14, God sends a counter warning to the world. And he says, if you do receive the mark, the problem won't be just that you lose your life. The problem will be that you lose your soul forever. And the stakes are so much higher. Those that follow after the Antichrist will suffer God's wrath. And to make his point, the angel uses three descriptions. And these are, these, are, these are hard descriptions, and I understand that. I understand these are hard descriptions, but they're in the Bible, and we need to address them. The first description is in the first part of verse 10. He, this is the one that sides with the Antichrist who rejects God, he will drink the wine of God's wrath which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. What is God's wrath? It is his steady and deliberate and graceless and merciless response towards those who reject him. And this angel is saying that those who side with the Antichrist will experience God's wrath, and not just in part, they're going to drink the full cup. And then there's a second description in the second part of verse 10 and the first part of verse 11. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur, in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. Now, fire and sulfur are, are what fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah when God was bringing judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and the destruction was total. And once again, now you have this warning of fire and sulfur, and the angel is warning now, though, that eternal fire and sulfur await those who reject God and then there's a third description in the second part of verse 11. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. So while many in the last days will love the Antichrist and his agenda and they'll want to follow along with his agenda, many will actually go along with the agenda because they're afraid of suffering. They want to be able to buy and sell, and so they're compelled to do that. But here, this description shows how foolish of a description or of a decision that that will be because those who receive the mark will face unending pain. There will be no rest day or night. Now, look at verse 12. The angel tells the saints what they should do. How should these Christians who are alive at this time respond? What should their response be? They should endure the suffering that comes from siding with Jesus. And that's true of us today as well. We should endure whatever suffering comes to us for following Jesus and for refusing to follow after this mark. And who are the saints? Well, they're the ones who will do so. The saints are the ones who keep God's commands and they keep their faith in Jesus. They do not bow the knee to the Antichrist, but instead, by God's grace, they are strengthened to endure to the end. Now, friends, are there weightier verses in the Bible? I don't know. But these are not the kind of verses that you just glaze over. If words mean something, if the Bible is to be taken seriously, this is the time in our study of the Bible when we want to stop and think about what God is saying because God is not a pathetic deity. He is a king. 
And he is speaking as clearly, as clearly as possible to us about a reality that is so utterly serious that it would be nothing short of insanity to simply just glaze over. So with all the love in my heart, I am asking you and imploring you to pay attention to this. What is God talking about? What is he saying? These are weighty verses. Here's some of the clearest teaching in the Bible about the nature of hell. And when I use that word hell, I'm talking about final judgment. There are three truths here that we see. First, the Bible's description shows us that hell will be unspeakably horrible. Look at the images that God uses here. Uh, the cup of his wrath. It's a cup of wrath. It's fire and sulfur. It's eternal restlessness. Each one of these images is horrible in itself. And when you put it together, the combination of it is it's unimaginable in terms of suffering. In other words, the angel's warning is deadly serious. It's deadly serious. Hell will be like drinking a cup of burning poison, like being roasted by fire. It will be marked by eternal restlessness. Those are the images that are being put before us. And if the Bible is the word of God, if Jesus is the son of God, if he did rise from the dead, if indeed he's the one that says more about hell than anyone else in the Bible, it would behoove us to pay attention to his words here. And friends, the words are a warning. They're warning. This is why Jesus says it's better to cut off your right hand and pluck out your right eye than to go to hell because it's horrible. And may God help us heed the warning. A second truth, hell is eternal. You see that most clearly in the second description and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. Now, when you consider that hell is going to be something like drinking a uh, burning poison, like being roasted by flames, like never experiencing rest ever, uh, that, that's terrible. But now consider the fact that the Bible says that that experience doesn't just endure for a time, but it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And friends, that is what the Bible teaches so clearly over and over and over. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, God speaks about those who rebel against him this way. He says, as they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me, for their worm will never die, and their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all humanity. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, verses 45 and 46, speaking to those who did not love him, who did not serve him, he said, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How long will the life of the righteous last? Unto all eternity. How long will the punishment of the wicked last? The same length of time unto all eternity. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Speaking about false teachers, they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. In his medieval classic, Dante pictured hell with a sign over it that said, abandon hope all ye who enter here. And it's not fiction. That is the clear teaching of the Bible that if you once enter into hell, you are there for all eternity. And day will become month, will become year, will become decade, will become century, will become millennia. 
unto all eternity, and there will be no hope of changing your position. Out of love for you, because I believe this is what the Bible says, I must place it before you as as plainly as I can. This is what Jesus is warning us about. This is what he's telling us to be concerned about. And oh, friend, I would ask that today you would pray and you would say, God, if what that man up there is saying is true, help me understand it. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. There's a third truth. God is not embarrassed at all by hell. You know, that stood out to me if you think about it. Many Christians feel embarrassed about hell. It's not a topic we delight in. We don't teach it with smiles on our faces. No, it's something that we grieve over the idea of this eternal punishment. Many Christians feel embarrassed to talk about it, though, because, well, in our day, people don't like that, and people don't want to believe in a God like that, and people say things like, my God would never have a hell, and they're right. Their God would never have a hell. The problem is their God is not the true God. Because the true God has clearly spoken and he has said, these are the stakes for all who will reject me. So friend, hear the truth as plainly as I can tell you. God is not embarrassed by this. You notice he sends the angel there to proclaim to all creation. He sends the messenger for all to see and he boldly says as plainly as possible, these are the stakes. And so I want to as plainly as possible put the stakes before you. Friend, we must all die. And the Bible says, after death comes judgment. You will one day stand before God and give an account for the way you've lived, even for every word you have spoken. And the Bible says, ahead of time, no one will pass the test. No one will be good enough based on their life to pass the test. And if you go to that test unprepared, the Bible says that for eternal ages, you will be separated from God, from life, from light. You will be surrounded, but not by friends. You'll be surrounded by entities that will despise you and act like demons to you, and you yourself will do the same to others. And for eternal ages, you will be filled with rage and despair. And God, in his mercy today, is speaking to you, and he's saying, friend, you're going to die. Take it seriously. Take it seriously. The answer to this is the answer that we gave at the beginning of the sermon, which is that God is such a good and loving and gracious God that God himself came into the world to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners like us so that by putting our trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, we will never go to hell, but instead we will enter into eternal life and be with him forever and ever. And it's a free gift. And it's offered to you this morning if you will receive it. So for the love of your own soul, turn to Christ this morning. Stop ignoring God. Finally, in this passage, there's an encouragement in verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. So now we've heard the messages of the three angels. Now we hear the message of a a voice from heaven. 
We're not sure exactly who the voice is, but given the way the Holy Spirit responds to this voice in the second part of this verse, I believe that this is the voice of God the Father. And what is God's message? He says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This is now the second blessing that's been pronounced. The first blessing is given at the beginning for those who read it. Now, this is the second blessing given in the book. It's a word that means happy, spiritually prosperous. Who are the happy and the spiritual prosperous? Surprisingly, it's the Christian dead. In the context of Revelation, we're talking about the onslaught of Antichrist. So most especially, it's talking about those who will be martyred by the Antichrist during the tribulation. But this blessing belongs to all believers, belongs to all who trust in Jesus. What is the blessing? Why are the dead blessed? The Holy Spirit tells us in verse 13, the second part, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. That word labors there that we're resting from, it's a word that speaks of laboring unto exhaustion, unto weariness. And the idea is that those alive at the end of time that are facing the onslaught of the Antichrist, they will be exhausted when they come to the end of their life. Many will have their lives taken from them. But you see, because Jesus rose from the dead, death never has the last word in the life of a believer. Jesus rose from the dead, and all who are in him, they will also rise with him from the dead. So death has lost its sting. And now for the Christian, what comes? What comes is rest, eternal rest. So if I can, if I can kind of bring the, the ship around, if I can kind of land the plane here, I want to land the plane here on the reality that those who follow Jesus uh, enter into a world that can be described by rest, forever and ever, living with God in a perfect world. And even beyond that, it says that God will reward us for the work that we've done. Why? It says their works follow after them, which means we will never regret anything we've done for Jesus. Anything. It will follow after us for all eternity. It's hard to imagine a more encouraging word for believers who are living under persecution for believers who will be living at the end of time under the Antichrist, they will live hard lives, but by God's grace, they will endure and their works will follow after them. One final observation as we conclude, those who die in Christ are blessed. Again, this blessing is not only for end time martyrs. This belongs to all believers. It is very true that as we come to the end of our lives, many of us will be exhausted, will be exhausted. But when we die, we close our eyes, we open our eyes then again in a perfect world that can be described as rest and our works follow after us. That means that God notices every act of love and God notices every tear of sorrow for sin and every sigh of longing for heaven and God notices every heartfelt prayer for others and God will reward us for the grace that he has produced in us which is why we begin the service this morning reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So friends, we've been confronted with a reality this morning, a reality of hell that is horrible. And yet... We've also been given this, this idea that in Christ now, freely offered to us this morning is rest. Once again, we've been confronted with the reality that there are two and only two ways to live. One way leads to destruction. It leads to the judgment of God. The other way, the way of following Christ, it leads to rest. Friends, my question for you this morning is, what path are you on? The road of your life, where is it headed 
If you want to talk with someone about what you've heard this morning, I would love to talk with you. Any of the pastors in our church would love to sit down and talk with you. Many of the people sitting around you this morning would love to just talk with you about what God has done for them in Christ and open the Bible with you and pray with you, and we invite you to do that. Let's pray.